Let's pray. Dear Father, God, we, uh, we come to you, Lord, just acknowledging who you are, Lord, and how worthy you are of praise, Lord, how worthy you are of our admiration and our service and everything that we can possibly give you, Lord. And we, we are, have just been humbled by being able to sing about you and just worshiping you, Lord, in spirit and in truth. Father, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sin. That there is a hope, that there is a peace, that there is a forgiveness available for sinners like us, God. That is the reason we're here. That is the reason we worship you. That's the reason we don't want to forsake your church and forsake your gathering together. That you've called us to do, Lord. And Lord, uh, Father, I just pray that as we move now into this time of studying your word, I pray that you'd give us ears to hear and eyes to see wonderful things in your word, that we would um, just be eager and excited, Lord, to learn about your word and about your church specifically, God, that we would realize that the church belongs to you, and therefore you're the one who gets to decide how things are done in the church. and. God, I pray that we'd realize that the church is your home. Church is where you dwell with your people in this spiritual body that we're in, Lord. And Lord, I also pray that you'd help us to understand our purpose as a church. I pray that you'd help us to understand our mission and our purpose as a pillar and the support of the truth of your word that you've spoken to us, God. And I just pray that this would be effective, that this would be clear, and I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I'm very excited this morning to announce to you all our future plans, finally. So, we have been waiting patiently for our application process at an um, organization called Reaching and Teaching to get far enough along where we can actually start to share with people and have more certainty about our plans moving forward. So, going forward, I know some of you have been expecting to hear about this. Elise and Lena and I are planning to move to South Africa. Okay, so in the next year, in around August, we're planning to go to South Africa to do church planting ministry. And so uh, our heart is to see the church in South Africa strengthened and to establish a stronger witness of biblically rooted and grounded and faithful gospel-believing churches over there. And so our work, Lord willing, will have three aspects to it. The first will be the church plant, which will be in, in the Cape Town area. We're going to be trying to plant a church there in the next few years. Um, the second aspect will be my continued participation, our continued participation, as Elise has been helping the ministry with different social media and media-related stuff at times. Um, our, uh, yeah, our participation will, will be with a uh, ministry called URSA, the Institute for Reformation in South Africa, which is dedicated to education and networking and support for faithful biblical churches, and also is dedicated towards the recovery of the reformed heritage in South Africa. And then lastly, a nice benefit is that I'll already be in Africa, and so I'll be able to be more involved with African Pastors Conference, uh, as you all know much about, and, and it'll give us a springboard into impacting Africa easier. And so um, this is exciting for us, but I also 
honestly try not to think too much about leaving you guys because like it's just been uh you know we'll be we'll be here for like another six months but it's yeah it's very heartbreaking to think of us leaving you and Elise and I always just reflect on the fact that we've never been at a church like this one we've never been at such a true bible believing family loving church as grace and so we also couldn't ask for a better sending church but we're gonna miss you guys a ton and we're gonna just yeah Let's not go there yet. We got like six months. We'll, we're gonna <laughs> just, just yeah. Anyways, so um, yeah. So uh, to change gears into the sermon for this morning, but in a related note, um, my emphasis of my sermon will be on the church. So since we'll be church planters, this makes sense. So after all, the reason that missions exist, the whole reason that there's such a thing as missions and the Great Commission, is because there are places on earth where healthy churches are not yet planted where there are not yet people um, having God-honoring spirit and truth worship every single week in the name and the glory of God. That's not happening everywhere. That's the whole reason missions exist, is for the benefit of the church, for the growth and expansion of local churches all across the world. And so let me introduce our text for this morning. It's 1 Timothy 3, verse 14 to 16. Please turn there. So 1 Timothy is written from... The Apostle Paul to the young minister Timothy, who is serving at the church in Ephesus. So you'll see a little bit of overlap here sometimes between the book of Ephesians. I'll be drawing from at times. He's at the church of Ephesus. The context of this can be summarized twofold. One, that Timothy himself is a young man who needs encouragement and strengthening because he's in such a young ministry. But on another hand, it is that he needs wisdom and he needs wise counsel on how to govern the church that is plagued with a lot of false teaching and opposition. And so in the middle of Paul's instructions throughout this book, we find our text this morning, which is on the nature and the purpose of the church. Nature and the purpose of the church. Let's read it together. 1 Timothy three fourteen to 16. This is the word of the Lord. These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. May the Lord bless this reading of his word to us this morning. So regarding this topic of the nature and the purpose of the church, it's safe to say that we live in very confusing times. We really do. There has always been confusion and opposition to the Lord's church, of course, in every age. But these times that we're in right now, they seem especially confusing. And the confusion arises because of the vast array of of different perspectives on matters that are central to the health and proper functioning of the church. The rapid rate also at which strange ideas and wrong beliefs about the church can spread with things like the internet, um, with social media, stuff like that, also makes it more difficult, right? This, this confusion about the church and what its purpose is spreads faster. There are a broad array of heresies, cults, and divergent ideas that have an impact on the church today. And this is no different in South Africa, where we'll be going. And so maybe um, 
Maybe it isn't always heresy or some kind of a cult or something like that that impacts the church and the way that it's supposed to function and its doctrine. But sometimes the confusion is on things that are simple and practical. Like, for instance, asking, how is the church supposed to relate to the surrounding community? Or are we supposed to try and attract people to God um, by using all kinds of methods and things to try to attract them to make unchurched people more comfortable in church? Or, um, you know, should we use all kinds of programs and different things that the church offers to try to attract people to come to church, to come into God's kingdom? So you see there's, this is just a sampling, but there are so many questions and with so many different possible answers, it's just confusing. Everyone has an opinion, everyone has an answer, Everyone has something and a question, but we don't have um, solid uh, confidence on these things if we don't go back to the word of God. So the question is, in this confusing time, what are we to do as Grace Baptist Church? Or what are we to do as a church plant in South Africa to make sure that we are on the right track? What is to be our authority and our guide, our final answer for how the church is to be conducted? The answer, as always, is to return to the word, to get back to the basics of what God wants from his church and how he wants his church to operate in the world. This is a good thing. This is an amazing thing because when we get back to the basics, to what the word says about how the church is to be, this serves as a refuge for us, a settling, a refuge for us in all of the confusion and uncertainty that's out there regarding what the church is supposed to do. And so this morning, in light of our desire to do church planning and see healthy churches in South Africa, and in light of the fact that you all obviously want to know how the church um, is to be run in God's sight, I want us all to go back to the basics and look at what God says about the church. We want to look at what God says about his church. So in our passage, we see that the church is described as the house or the household of God, which is the church of the living God. So the first thing I want us to see is that God says the church belongs to him. The church belongs to him. Yes, the church belongs to God, with Christ as the head of the body of the church. The church does not belong to man, but to God. Now this is probably obvious to some of us, but it is incredibly foundational. And it cuts a lot of the nonsense out of the church. It cuts a lot of what passes in so-called churches today out. If we can just go back to this basic principle that the church belongs to God, first and foremost. So let me illustrate. When you're sitting down at a church meeting or church planting, how often is it, I think this, or I think that, or Bob thinks this, or Joe thinks that, and everyone's got an opinion. Wilton's nodding because he knows this happens at the church meetings. This this is just the way it goes everyone has an opinion everyone says this or that but hopefully when we get back to the fact that the church belongs to him belongs to god then we can understand that there should be a lot more of god says this or this passage says this about how we should budget how we should work um, towards uh, growing the kingdom in our community So when we're trying to do outreach and social work and trying to decide how preaching and music and everything else is supposed to be done that's relevant, we need to ask the question, where does it say this in God's word? What does God's word have to say to us? 
When we're trying to decide who to bring into membership or who to discipline, we need to ask, where does it talk about this in God's word? When we're wondering a question as important as, who should be allowed to preach today? We should ask, what does God's word say about this? There's so many things that the church is involved with. There's so many tasks it has to do. But the most important thing we have to understand is the basic fact that the church belongs to God, and then that, therefore, brings us back to God's word over our own opinions and our own thoughts about how we think things should be. Now, it's only logical that since the church belongs to God, that the church is then to be governed and ordered God's way, right? God's way. If God is the one who owns the church, if it belongs to him, if he's the one who's building it, if it's his idea, then obviously it's going to have to be governed and ordered his way. And this is why we see that Paul has written to Timothy uh, so that Timothy would know how he ought to conduct himself in the house of God. There were many false teachers around that day in that church trying to impact Timothy, coming in with all kinds of other ideas, unbiblical ideas about how people ought to conduct themselves, what things ought to be believed in the church. And Paul is going against that, giving a specific instruction for how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God. Timothy's calling is a, is a calling to be a pastor, to be a shepherd. And this is an extremely high calling. Paul knows the only way that Timothy can fulfill this calling is by following God's standard and not his own man-made standard. Timothy will definitely go awry if he follows his own standard. So the things that Paul writes about the doctrine and the correct conduct in the church are very important, not only because they allow the church to run in an orderly fashion, not chaotically, but most importantly because the things that are written The things that are instructed in the word of God for how church is to be done, that Paul gives to Timothy for how one ought to conduct themselves, those things are intended to uphold the glory and honor of God in the world. Those things are actually intended to um, not only give order and and unity to what happens at church and and the mission of church, but also these things uphold the glory and honor of God. So the church belongs to God, And thus, God gives detailed instructions to his church because he cares about how he's represented in the world. He cares tremendously about how he's represented and about how we worship him and also how we enjoy him properly in the way that he wants us to. Now, this fact that there is a ought or there is a proper way to conduct yourself in the household of God, this doesn't necessarily seem out of order for us it seems very obvious to some of us but in fact it is far from obvious to many people in the world today many people who say they are part of churches today do not like this ought that there is a right way that you ought to conduct yourself the key word like I said is ought or should it indicates that there is a right and a proper way to do things and this flies in the face of our current world what does our current world say it doesn't say what does God say I ought to do Our current world says, what will make us happy? What's going to be the easiest or most convenient? What's going to work the best or get the job done or make the pews fill up the fastest? Asking all kinds of things, not asking, 
what ought to be done. What does God say ought to be done? God says from his word that there is a correct way to conduct ourselves in the church. And so here at Grace, and wherever we are in the world, there are true churches being planted, and there are people who need to understand that there is a correct way, there is an ought, there is a ought to how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Why? Because the church belongs to God, and so that means he gets to call the shots in his church. That brings us to the second point, which is that God says the church is his dwelling place. It's his dwelling place or his household. So in the first point, we said that the house belongs to the Lord, so he makes the house rules. That makes sense, right? If the house belongs to the Lord, if the church belongs to God, he makes the house rules. And here we see that since he owns the house, since he owns the church, he also lives in that. He lives in the church. He lives in that house. This is a core theme throughout the entire Bible. God is always seeking to dwell in the midst of his people. So at the fall, we know that the closest communion with God was broken by sin. And ever since that, ever since then, God has been seeking to dwell with his people again in an intimate way. In the Old Testament, we see God's covenant name, Yahweh, is actually based on the verb to be. And it actually means, I will be with. I will be with you. I will be. In other words, he's saying, in his very name, he says he has a desire to be with people. And also, over and over again, he just plainly states throughout the Old Testament, he says that he wants to live with his people, that he wants to walk among his people. In the New Testament, this continues. God says, where two or three are gathered in my name, then what? I'm with you. I'm in the midst of them. In Ephesians 2.22, the church is called, is said to be being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we see this clear throughout Scripture that God wants to dwell with His people. And the fact that the church is inhabited by God and that our passage says that our God is a living God, also, right? It says that. It says, this is the church of the living God. The fact that the church is inhabited by God is His household and that He's a living God means also that the church itself is a large living spiritual body in the world. This is a, this is a deep thing, but an amazing thing. Our God is the living God, obviously, which is in stark contrast to all the dead gods that they would have been worshiping in Ephesus before um, the gospel was proclaimed there. They used to worship lifeless idols, a dead God. But then our God breaks in, and He is the living God. And His people that He lives in the midst of, that He lives in the church of, is a living and active body of believers. The church indwelt by the living Spirit of God is active and alive in the world. It's growing, right? The church is growing. The church is moving. The church is expanding. It is living and active because the living and active Word of God is what has formed a church, right? And this, this, the work of the church is to proclaim this living and active Word. And so naturally, the church grows, it moves, and it has an influence in the world. And that same word transforms the members of the church. It's constantly changing us into the image of Christ. Into active and spirit-filled people. People who are out witnessing. People who are living and active in the world too. So if, so if this is true, you know, a common complaint against the church is that it's cold. It's dead. It's a boring religion, right? 
If this is true, then this should be the exact opposite experience that is had in church. In fact, the church is to be a living and active, powerful force of God's work in the world. A living and active, powerful thing to be experienced. Not some dead and cold and boring thing. Now, admittedly, there are churches that are dead and cold and boring. That don't know the true gospel. That aren't actually fired up about the things of God. But that's not, what the, that's not what we're hearing here. When we see that the church is supposed to be this living and active thing, it could be anything but dead, cold, and boring. It needs to be an active force of God in the world. And this is a very important note here regarding the spirituality of the church. It's called the spirituality of the church because the church is a spiritual community. This means that if the church is a living spiritual organism then it needs to operate with spiritual means and not with worldly or physical means. If the church is a spiritual living organism, it needs to operate not with physical and worldly means, but with the spiritual means that God has given to the church. As such, the church is called to gather in believers and to help them reach maturity. Using what? Using all kinds of worldly and earthly gimmicks? No, of course not. Using the ordained means of grace and the spiritual tools that God has provided for that church to grow. For that church to flourish. Any other method than the true spiritual means of grace, in other words, the Gospel and the Word preached, prayer, the sacraments, things like that. Anything other than these spiritual things that God has given His church, the means of grace, is only ever going to produce fake cultural or immature Christians. It's always just going to do one of those things. It's never going to produce real, the real true spiritual thing. And this is a big problem in South Africa as well as here in the South. There's a huge thing of cultural or nominal Christianity. People who don't understand the spirituality of the church. So many people will say they believe, but there's a lack of understanding regarding conversion or regarding discipleship. Or regarding how we are supposed to walk the Christian life in the Spirit. In the context of a local church. Participating in that local church. In that Spirit-filled local church. So in this regard, we pray that the proper teaching on the church, proper teaching on conversion, the fact that the church is a spiritual body, and being clear on these things like membership, we pray that going forward in our ministry, first of all here at Grace, but then also going forward to South Africa to church plant, we pray that we'll be able to have an impact by teaching these things clearly. Teaching these spiritual matters and using these means that God has ordained. Because when you use those means, you actually have a certainty that God will bless those things. He promises us that if we do things His way, He blesses that. That's not to say that the whole country is going to get converted. It's just to say that whatever God wants to have accomplished with His means, whatever effect that God wants to have happen in that church will take place. Because when His means are at work, and His Spirit is living and active in a spiritual body, it can't help but produce the fruit that He wants it to produce. Now one other thing that accompanies this concept that the church is the household of God is that the church is a family. The church is a family. Oikos is a household. It's a family word. It's used to denote a household and all the family members as well. So the living God is the father over his family of spirit-filled children through the work of their older brother, Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. So the church is always supposed to be a close 
family relationship. That's what it's supposed to be. That's something we experience here at Grace all the time. So we see in 1 Timothy 5, verse 1 to 2, this family language that's associated with the church at Ephesus. Paul says, Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. And then it says, in the introduction, Paul calls Timothy his true son in the faith. Right? None of these people actually have the same blood. They're not giving birth to one another. But they're brothers, fathers, mothers, sisters. They're a family. They're supposed to be a family. Now the interesting thing about this when it comes to the church is does anybody choose what family they're in? Not really. Right? You're born into a family. You're born into a family and you didn't pick which one. Interesting how that falls under God's providence. And that's the exact same thing with the church. The church is a family that you're born again into and you don't pick that. You just are. All of a sudden you find yourself in a family. Just like a regular family. You're born into it. So this is important for us to think about. As a family then, God does not call us to necessarily like every single thing about every other family member. Right? Do you have that in your own family? Probably not. He does not call us to agree with every other member of the family either. Do you have that in your family? Probably not. What He calls us to do is to love them and to lay down our lives willingly for them. That's what He calls us to do for our family. And this clashes very strongly with our modern consumeristic view of church. People people are on a mission, on a consumer-driven mission to go and find a church that suits them. Where they'll find people that they like. Or people that agree with them. And this consumerism is as prevalent in America as it is in South Africa. And it's something that needs to constantly be pushed against for it to work. For, For the truth of God to be able to be applied in the church Contrary to this kind of consumerism where you try to find a so-called family that fits you, that agrees with you on every single thing, listen, we'll get later to creeds and doctrine and the fact that there is important things that we must agree on. Don't get me wrong. But there's all sorts of ancillary extra nonsense that people use to decide what church they go to that has nothing to do with God's standard. So what we need to do is we shouldn't shop for a church that fits us We should try to find a true church that preaches the Bible and the Gospel purely. And then we should hope that God transforms us to fit it. You see what I mean? We're not trying to find a church that fits us, but rather we want God to transform us to be able to fit into His church, the one that's the most faithful to God's Word. That's the goal here when we're looking for church. When we're talking about the church and its purpose and its mission. So when the church acknowledges that it belongs to God, and that it is God's dwelling place, then the church is on the right track to finally start serving God's purpose rightly, to finally start fulfilling what God has called it to do in the world. And that brings us to our, to our last longer point. So, so thirdly, we see that God says the church's purpose is to be a pillar and a support of the truth. The church has many tasks, But this is its most important purpose, to be a church that is a pillar and a support of the truth. We see this purpose in verse 15. 
I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground or support of the truth. So so regarding the church as a pillar and support of the truth, there's an important clarification that needs to be made. When we say that the church is the pillar and support of the truth, we do not want to give the impression that the truth or the word comes from the church, right? That the church is somehow the source of it or the one who determines what the truth is. Rather, it is always the truth that first forms the church. So it's an important caveat to have in mind. People in the church have no authority to change or mess with or add to the truth. They don't determine what the truth is. They are formed by the truth, the gospel, the accurate doctrine. And then after that, they serve as a support, a pillar that relates to that truth. That's why, we'll get to this later, but there's a bit of disagreement on how the second phrase for ground or support or bulwark or buttress is supposed to be translated. That's why I think it's important to realize that there's some misunderstanding possible in some of the possible translations that they use. So, Sometimes people go with ground or foundation of the truth. They'll say the church is the pillar and the ground or pillar and the foundation of the truth. This is not wrong, by the way. This is not inaccurate. It's just to say that it's liable to being misunderstood. Right? We don't want to misunderstand the fact and think that the church is the one that's producing the truth or deciding the truth or the one making up what's right and what's wrong and what's true. When considering our role as the pillar and the support of the truth, we must always remember that God is the ultimate source and the foundation of the truth. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, No one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Ultimately, God and Jesus Christ, those are the foundation. God's Word, that is the foundation. And we do not determine it as the church. But there's so much other richness and more to be added to what it means that we are the pillar and the support of the truth. And we'll get into that some more later. So another important consideration is that 1 Timothy emphasizes the impact of false teachers on the stability of the church. It begins and ends and is filled all throughout with warnings about such people, with, false, with warnings about false teachers and those who are trying to deceive So being an effective pillar and support is the opposite of what Paul describes in Ephesians 4 as being children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. That is the opposite of being a pillar and a support of the truth. That is being tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine. Instead of love, purity, a good conscience, and sincere faith, Paul writes regarding these false teachers in 1 Timothy that some, having strayed, have turned aside to idle talk, desiring to be teachers of the law, understanding neither what they say nor the things which they affirm. Later, he says, some have rejected the true faith and a good conscience and made shipwreck of their faith. In another place, he says that some have tragically strayed from the true path. So in light of all this deception, Paul wants us to be clear that it is fundamental to the identity of any church that it must be upholding the truth in opposition to false teaching, in opposition to those who are lying, to those who are trying to deceive. Now sadly, historically, in South Africa where we're heading, the church got away from this purpose. It got away from this identity in how it was serving the world. Instead of being the pillar and the support, 
defending it itself, the church relied too much on seminaries, too much on the academic establishment in order for this aspect of the church's work, this defense of truth and this um, work of being a pillar and a support. And so, unsurprisingly, over time, the liberal theology, the wronged ideas that were being propagated in the seminaries crept their way into the pulpits, crept their way into many of the churches, and the church failed at its job of being a pillar and support of the truth. There's a reason here. There's a very important reason here that God says the church is the pillar and the support of the truth and not the seminary is the pillar and support of the truth. You understand that? We cannot outsource this. I'm not saying seminaries are bad. I went to one, learned a lot of things. But what's important is we can't outsource this work that the church is doing. We can't outsource the fact that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Now, to better understand this, let's briefly look at the word pillar. Stulos. It can also mean support or column or prop. And it is related to the word to stiffen or to stabilize something. That's what it means to be a pillar. That's what pillar is regarding here. So the immediate thing we obviously think about, pillar is pretty self-explanatory, is that it is a column that's in a building that's designed to bear heavy weight, that's supposed to stabilize and bear heavy weight vertically. So... This is definitely, I think, an accurate assessment of what pillar means. This is definitely a part of what Paul is trying to communicate here. But I think there's also more to this word pillar than just the structural or the stabilizing aspect. In another respect, the pillar means that the church is to be displaying and proclaiming the truth outwardly. And let me, let me prove that to you. I think um, one reason Paul would have this in mind is because that city of Ephesus had many temples. And yes, there were pillars in those temples. These were pagan temples. There were pillars in those temples that had an undeniable structural function, but they also had an outward, an ornamental, an aesthetic function. We don't always think of that. A pillar is also this outward and aesthetic thing. But even more interesting and more importantly is the way that I think Paul, as a Jewish man who memorized the Old Testament, would have likely understood this outward function of a pillar. Okay, this, is very, this is very interesting. I didn't know this before I started studying for this sermon. So in our Old Testament reading, Prashant read this morning that there were two pillars that were built at the front of Solomon's temple. These temple pillars that were on the house of God so you see the connection there? He was building the temple, the house of God, and our passage here to do with the church, the house of the living God. Um, the church of the living God and His house. So you see that connection? These, out, these pillars that were on the house of God that we read about were purely ornamental and symbolic. They were purely ornamental and outwardly symbolic. They did not support anything or bear any weight. They didn't have any structural component. Their only function was a symbolic one, was to communicate something to the world. And in this regard, one of the pillars was called Yakin. He will prepare or establish is what that means. And this was supposed to communicate and signify the fact that he, God, would establish his temple and his people of Israel on the earth. That was one of the main communicated things by their temple, by their, the house of God. Now this, is, this, this we can carry on into Paul's meaning then. The church's function then is to also establish, uh, to be established in the world, to be prepared in the world as this pillar that stands out and displays something, declares something in the world. Now the other pillar at the temple 
in uh, the first of Solomon's temples was called Boaz, which is understood to mean in him is strength, communicating that in the Lord alone can strength be found. In the Lord and in him and his salvation alone is strength. And so Paul understands as a Jewish man that like these pillars, the function of the people of God has always been to declare God's word by being a living example of the truth on the earth, but also to speak it with your mouth. So the church is to be a pillar of truth, which means it is displaying the word. Like a, like a, it is displaying the word. It is displaying God's glory with its deeds as well, like a light that's on a hill. I think this is where it gets really, really interesting. Is Later in Jeremiah 52, verse 17, we see that Israel failed to be faithful to God's covenant and word. And so the two pillars were broken down shattered and destroyed. The people of God neglected His Word, and because of that, God judged them. Now, this is, this is the part I'm talking about. God built another temple later, the second temple. But that temple didn't have pillars on it. Had no pillars on it. God does not reestablish His pillars in that outward symbolic sense after this covenant has been fully broken by the people and they've been judged for that broken covenant and that broken word. Until now, until we're in the church age, until we're here in the Spirit, in the church, representing God as pillar and support of the truth. Now all of a sudden, He's brought back His pillars again. You see, He's brought back His pillars again in a fuller way, in a spiritual way, as we are to be a pillar and a support of the truth. So we've seen that there is, there's pretty much consensus on what a pillar, how, how pillar is supposed to be translated. But there's a lot of discussion regarding the second word, which is, as I mentioned, ground or foundation or buttress or support or bulwark. So I believe support is a pretty good translation. It captures what Paul is trying to communicate. But none of these possible translations is entirely off the mark. We should note, first of all, that the word here definitely emphasizes architectural support and stability. It's not as much focused on the outward aspect as what pillar was. This is just kind of the common sense understanding when you read the passage, right? A pillar and a support and a ground. And you think of stability, you think of this architectural aspect. Now, the ESV's rendering of buttress or other renderings such as bulwark communicate this another aspect to this, this work of the church, this purpose of the church, which is that it's to be a defensive or a lateral emphasis. In other words, the church's job is to defend the truth from all different angles, from all different types of um, lies. So the pillar is this vertical stabilizer, whereas a bulwark or a buttress or a foundation stabilizes it horizontally. So from all angles, the church is to be stabilized against lies and against deceit. That we are supposed to stand up and proclaim and hold to the truth as that kind of a defense. Now this is a big calling to pastors, to leaders, but also to every single one of you. Every single member of a church who's a professing member of the church of God who carries the name of Christ around with them every single day. Our task is to uphold and defend the truth of the Word of God. There is no higher calling than this, right? There's no higher calling we could ever have in the world, especially in this world that's constantly at enmity with God, that's constantly trying to break down the truth. 
Our role is to defend it from all sides in whatever capacities we can, not only with our tongue, but also with our deeds. But certainly, that is our calling, to be a defense, to be a defensive and a stabilizing aspect in the world. So, now you might be wondering, what is the truth that the church is tasked with upholding and defending? So most fundamentally, we understand that this task pertains to the core doctrines of the Christian faith. The truths for which the church should stand most urgently as pillar and support are the truths that are essential to salvation, the things without which you cannot be saved. These are the things that are the most worth defending because they are the, there's the most at stake, right? If, if, if we go wrong in these areas, there's the most at stake in those essential salvation doctrines. So many essential truths are summarized in the short creed or hymn that Paul quotes in verse 16. So you might be asking, what do you mean creed or hymn? Well, I know that this is a creed or at least a formal statement that the early church used as of their common belief because it's introduced with the statement in my translation. Others phrase it differently, like in different ways, but it's introduced and it says, and without controversy, without controversy, And so when we think of without controversy, what we need to understand is that that's Paul's way of saying everyone agrees on it. These are the things we all have to agree on. This is the creed. This is the confession. This is what we all have to sign off on in order to be Christian, in order to be established in the truth. These are the things. If we're going to be a pillar and a support of the truth, these are the things that are foundational and fundamental that we need to be protecting. Right? These are those important things. So let's read this creed. Verse 16. God was manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up in glory. There's so many crucial doctrines that are tied up in this one dense little statement. And they're alluded to in this one little piece. It's it's really amazing. So I'm just going to briefly go through there and just draw out some of the things, this crucial, essential doctrines that Paul is pointing us to when he talks about the truth that we need to be defending here. Now, this is not going to be exhaustive by any means, but it's going to give you a good idea of what I'm talking about. So you can just follow along in your, in your text there as we go to each line and just see what all it has to do with. The phrase manifested in the flesh contains in seed form at least the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, the uncreated pre-existence of the Son of God, and the virgin birth, to name a few. The phrase vindicated or justified in the Spirit, obviously Jesus Christ does not need to be justified in the sense that we do. He gets vindicated as being God's righteous Son of God in this moment by the Spirit. But this statement contains in brief form, one, a connection to Jesus' baptism, involves His resurrection, and even the members of the Trinity are evident here, right? Why? Because the Son is vindicated in the Spirit before the Father. Even the Trinity is in this, in this statement. You, you might not see, well, there's a Trinitarian statement there, but it definitely involves all three persons of the Trinity. The phrase seen by angels captures some of what the mystery of the incarnation is. As even the angels for the longest time longed to understand these mysteries. They hadn't seen God ever. The only way they ever saw God, just like us, was in the form of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Seen by angels, an amazingly profound statement that we could easily just read over and, free, and, and not understand that there's so much central and important doctrine in there. 
The phrase preached among the Gentiles includes, one, the church's work of the Great Commission, and then also their calling to bring all people together in one, which is a huge teaching in the first century. It, it passes again over us, and we kind of move on from it sometimes. But there was such a huge false teaching even some of the people in Ephesus, some of the people in other churches in the New Testament would have believed this, that the Jews were so distinct from the other people that they weren't going to be brought together in one. But here it says that it was preached among all the nations and the Gentiles, believed on amongst all of them. It's a critical doctrine about the worldwide spread of the Gospel. The phrase believed on in the world reminds us that the Gospel is bearing fruit and will continue to bear fruit until Christ's return. That's what's going to happen in this inter-Advent time between when Jesus first came and when He comes again. The phrase taken or received up in glory refers at least to Jesus' ascension and to His being victoriously seated in glory from where He pours out the Holy Spirit, from where He is declared to be the Son of God and actually gives the church everything that it needs, all the spiritual life that it gets. So you can see what I mean. There's, this is a very short little statement, but it packs such a punch. And it packs so much in to these essential matters that Paul is considering when he says that we need to be a pillar and support of the truth. Prashant goes to seminary. He knows full well that there are many, many, many things that you could talk about that are not the essential core things of the doctrine of the faith of the church. We can go and we can talk about theology in all matters. And that's not bad. Right? That's interesting and helpful. Helps us figure out how to work in life. But that's not to say that these things should not be at the center of our focus. These things should always be core to what we do. These things that are central to the Gospel. For instance, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The Trinity. All these matters that are even hinted at or stated explicitly here in this creed. These are the things we need to have at the, central of the, at the heart of what we're dealing with. Now elsewhere in uh, 1 Timothy, in similar type of short creedal statement, Paul says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. You see what I mean? It's a creedal statement. He says, this is a faithful saying. It's worthy that all of you should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief. And shortly after this, Paul says, there is one God, one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So Paul knows that if the creedal statements about the manifestation in the flesh, justification in the spirit, appearance to the angels, declaration to the Gentiles, spreading across the world, and his ascension or being received up into glory are not true, he knows that if those things are not true, if this mystery of the Gospel, if this mystery of godliness is not true, then he is dead in his sins. Then he as the chief of sinners has no hope, has no mediator, and has no potential to be with God, to be with the God who is holy, to be with the God who wants to dwell with his people. So according to Paul, the church must be non-negotiably a pillar and support of these things. Now sadly, in South Africa, as with many other places, these truths have fallen on hard times. The bodily resurrection is, de is denied by many of the mainline seminary professors and many so-called pastors also don't even acknowledge this main core tenet of the faith. 
Other central doctrines of the Christian faith are also undermined. There are so few, there's actually very many people who call themselves ministers and pastors who don't even believe in the miracles, who don't even believe in the magnificent deeds of Jesus Christ. So much of what is called Christianity in South Africa today is not what we would call historic Orthodox Christian faith. It can be a mix of things. It could be a blend of the prosperity gospel or a blend of syncretism, uh, mixing African traditional religion with Christianity. It could be hyper-charismatic theology where uh, an overemphasis is on experience and not on the truth and where people pursue material wealth above everything else. And even amongst these communities, there's a, there's a common emphasis that there's still an ongoing office of apostle and prophet. That these people claim themselves to be apostles and prophets akin to Paul, akin to any of the apostles in the New Testament. So South Africa is a breeding ground and a tragic place when it comes to this kind of false doctrine. And all of it is a tragedy for anyone who wants to know the right path to God. Because in this poor country where a lot of people are struggling, it's so easy for them to prey on people with the prosperity gospel. Or if you've grown up in a in an African tradition or an African religion, it's so easy to say, why don't you add Christianity to that instead of saying, cut off from that. So may God help us in our work in South Africa to do a small part. Please be praying for this, that we might do a small part in opposing these huge problems. We're going to try to get back to the historic doctrinal creed, to the historic doctrinal truth, and to help people to be truly rooted and grounded in the Word. That's our aim. That's our goal. And so, ultimately, we understand this is just us. This will be just us in our church plant fulfilling the calling that God has always had that His church should be a pillar and a ground, a pillar and a support of the truth. So in closing, let's look at verse 16 one more time. Given that Paul is about to give this creedal statement that captures the core aspects of the gospel, we might expect him to uh, say, great is the mystery of the gospel. He often does say that in his writing. He often says, great is the mystery of the gospel, or just calls it the mystery of the gospel. But instead, here in the first part of verse 16, he said, without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. So there's a reason he does this. Because in the context of the purpose of the church, it is easy to see why one would need to have sound doctrine. But Paul wants more than that. Because he knows that sound doctrine, that the gospel truths in this little creed proclaimed properly, always produce fruit. He wants the mystery of the incarnation. He wants the the beauty of the resurrection. He wants the beauty of the Trinity. All these beautiful truths of the gospel to not only be a set of doctrines, but for them to actually produce piety and godliness in the life of the church. So he calls it a mystery because it is a true mystery how the gospel, if it's a set of objective doctrines, can in some people work so powerfully that it actually changes their whole life. That it actually makes them live a life that's pleasing to God. That makes them live a life that's honoring to God. Whereas in other people, they just take it on deaf ears. They don't care about it. It's an amazing mystery to think about. Sometimes it produces godliness. It's a mystery. Other times it produces hatred or apathy or a mix. 
It's also a great mystery. This is amazing. It is a great mystery that the kingdom is like a mustard seed. That's what he means when he's talking about the mystery of godliness. It's this element that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, a spiritual kingdom that comes and it doesn't necessarily appear with all kinds of trumpet blasts, all kinds of in-your-face communication, but it arrives quietly. It arrives spiritually. So the church mysteriously grows in the world as the Spirit works in ordinary churches, in ordinary places, through the preaching of the simple gospel, right? To produce totally extraordinary godliness. It's crazy for Paul. He says, man, we're doing all these ordinary things. The church is spiritual. A lot of times, if you first meet a Christian, maybe you don't even, you don't know, you don't don't have certainty that the Spirit of the living God lives in that person. But then you spend enough time with them. You spend enough time talking about God with them. And soon you see the mystery of godliness. Because these truths, these things that we are supposed to stand as a pillar and a support of, they produce that in people. They actually change people. They make them supernaturally and extraordinarily changed. It's a mystery and it's beautiful. So indeed, great is the mystery of godliness. In this regard, we understand that this beautiful mystery that the church is being made pure in accordance with God's word is even taking place at this time. It's crazy to think that this is even happening at this confusing and tumultuous time that I described at the beginning where there's so many different things going on. There's so much political and all kinds of other social things going on. And yet God's kingdom is still mysteriously growing. God is still being just as faithful and growing and and expanding his kingdom. And he's making these people that have the mystery of godliness that are different from the world. He's calling his people out to be different from the world. In this regard, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. She attracts it. So it's interesting. People, like I said at the beginning, they're trying all these methods, all these tactics, all these different things that they need to do. To, to attract people in who are unchurched, people who don't have the Spirit, when in fact they should be sticking to the truth, sticking to the basic creedal, basic doctrinal facts of Jesus Christ, to the essential saving doctrines and the essential matters of the Scriptures. And that will produce the mystery of godliness in people. And when people meet somebody over time who's got that mystery of godliness, it invariably attracts them to the church. So may we be like this, brothers and sisters. May we strive evermore to be transformed by God's truth, to uphold His truth, to acknowledge that God is the one, right? God is the one whose church it is. It belongs to Him. He lives in it. That we're supposed to be spiritually and alive in the world. And brothers and sisters, if the church is to be different, then we at Grace Baptist must listen to what God says about the church. And I desire for all of you, please, for the next however many years, please be praying that we will be faithfully able to apply in South Africa what God says about His church as we go over there, as we seek to build a healthy, God-honoring church in South Africa. So these are exciting times because honestly, with the world being so unstable and so much chaos, in my opinion, about the church and things going on. There's a lot of people I feel that are seeking for something solid. That are really seeking for solid church. That are seeking for something based in the word. 
in tradition, in orthodoxy, that are seeking for something to stabilize them in this world of confusion. So let's ask. Let's always be asking, what does God say about His church? And let's be proclaiming what God says about His church. Let's be proclaiming His truth. Let's be a pillar and a support of it. Let's pray, brothers and sisters. Father, God, we thank You that You live in the church. You have formed the church by Your truth, by Your Word preached. You sustain Your church. And I thank You that You give us the spiritual help required to faithfully serve in Your church, to faithfully be as a pillar and a support of Your Gospel and of Your truth, Lord. I pray that we would never forsake the church, that we would never think that we can do it on our own because that would be to forsake Your body, to forsake where You live. And there could be nothing more foolish than that, Lord. I pray that we would do everything and constantly be reforming, God, to bring our lives and our church and everything we do into greater conformity to what God says about it, what His final word is about it. Father, I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.